You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And Ryan O. So thank you for joining us at Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. All right, so interestingly, we recorded this episode quite a while back, and uh, we had a guest on the show, and we wanted to interview him on comedy. And he is seriously one of the funniest people that I've ever had the luxury of working next to. Unreal. Stu. Yeah. Always cracks me up. (laughs) (laughs) So what's great about this, I mean, he... He's in the same field as us. We've known him for a long time, and he has sort of gone out of his way to learn about what what it is about things that make us laugh, you know, and understanding exactly the factors. Well, not exactly, but sort of getting a feel for the factors for what comedy is and and why we like it and how it works and what what makes a good joke, you know? Kind of like why we laugh like we laugh. I know it's not quite ringing a bell with the podcast but i think my favorite part about him is how he's fantastic at trying to make it relatable for the individual so like he'll figure out how to break it down in a way to where you can understand it in terms of like how you enjoy comedy does that make sense yeah so in this episode we're going to discuss things with him we discussed things with him i guess past tense is the correct verb conjugation to use there In terms of sort of the scientific approach to understanding humor, and we also try to keep it pretty funny, so I think this is maybe our funniest episode ever. (laughs) At least that that would be a good title or something. If you think so, please let us know. (laughs) Sure. Okay, so you got anything else before we jump into this interview? I think that's it. Have fun with it. It's a fun episode. Thank you very much for joining us, and enjoy this episode with our special guest, Stu Law. Time travel. How does Sean Connery shave? With a razor? Mm-hmm. Control Esh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad. It's yeah. Not bad. Um, and that's one of those things where, you know, Control Esh by itself almost, it does have some silly features. If I told you, true, I'm going to tell you a joke, and the punchline is Control Esh. <laughs> I think that you could almost get more laughing out of that, you know, like than trying to set it up. Right. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic. And I think that, you know, that might be an interesting thing to talk about at first is, you know, I think the scientific community uh, sort of risks turning humor into something and tries to like boil it down to a very, very simple idea. Right. So when you read scientific articles of humor, you'll see, you know, things like it's a metaphor. It's sort of this release, right? There's a tension and a release. There's a behavioral article titled a threshold theory of humor response. And they essentially make the argument that humor is when you cross a certain threshold and there's a tension and then there's like a distension that happens in a certain pattern, right? So, and you can see how, why that would be an interesting way to do it. You know, that's sort of a very common way of looking at humor is there's a buildup and then some sort of release, right? And that can be very basic you know, peekaboo is this, right? Yeah. Like mom disappears and then her, or something weird happens, right? She certainly doesn't disappear, but baby sees mom hide behind the couch and then pops up, right? So there's this sort of, and there's a sort of, you know, maybe verbal or semi-verbal recognition on the part of the infant that everything's okay, right? Got it. You're walking this really fine line between making the baby cry, right? Like startling, jumping behind the couch and 
well, all that shifts is a sense that everything is fine, but something weird happened, right? So mom disappears. There's a little bit of maybe attention for mm-hmm. that baby, for the infant, right? Looking, scanning, and then she pops out. And that's funny. I mean, and so, you know, I don't know how young babies are when they acquire humor, but it tends to be a big deal when babies laugh for the first time, right? And they may laugh at things that, you know, they're not funny. They might be smiling in their sleep or laughing in their sleep, and it's really hard to get a hold of what they're responding to. But there comes a point where they will laugh at things kind of predictably, right? That sort of raises the question, I think, of if that game, the peekaboo game, that sort of actually not it's not like they're uh, you're discovering what like the baby just has humor and that's what humor is but that sort of maybe like shapes the kind of humor that they might have versus if they didn't weren't ever exposed to that sort of game that they might find humor in something else i don't know what do you think about that i think it you know there's some universal cultural features to it that are kind of interesting right it's hard to imagine a culture that doesn't engage in some kind of you know, tension, distension with children, you know, it seems to have pretty, a pretty wide application. So it's kind of interesting. I think that a lot of the shaping of humor happens later, you know, more verbally. Okay. You know, this is a very primal, if you will, kind of version of the humor response, right? Like it, not a lot of language is coming online. There's, it's not very complex. It seems to have common features, you know, like most babies will engage in this response pretty universally at a pretty set time in their lives it seems like it seems like there's some developmental features to it but you know i think shaping of humor at least in terms of just a typically a free-feeding adult operating in their world happens a lot later it's very verbal right it's very it's very sure. wrapped up in language and things happen much you know how you interact with your friends i think and things like that really shapes who you are you know, the kinds of reinforcers that become available to you when you say things that are funny and things like that really have an impact on the kinds of things that you find funny and things like that. So I think, yeah, certainly you're going to be shaped as an infant and you will start to develop a sense of humor as soon as you acquire language. But I think humor seems to me to be something that is fairly malleable, you know, like it's not like when you're as a baby, you have your sense of humor that you're going to have forever. Very true. <laughs> you're going to shift a lot. I mean, I look at the things that I thought was funny in in middle school and things like that, and I'm probably not going to laugh at the same kinds of things, you know? Yeah. And culturally, these things develop in a way that it's hard to appreciate the humor of older generations, you know? Uh, you are missing this cultural piece. So if I were to watch The Three Stooges, I might not laugh the whole time and I might think that that culture is kind of ridiculous, you know, eye gouging and but then again, physical you know, comedy. yeah, you look back at Charlie Chaplin and some of the physical comedy that he did and it's hard not to appreciate like the magic that happens there. So maybe that's a little unfair to say, you know, some humor is timeless. But, you know, if you look back at popular comedy in all eras you're probably going to be fairly disappointed i think more than you're laughing at things that are occurring so i'm going to take a quick step back because you've been describing all these things and let's start actually by to the best of your ability trying to define humor well i think there's a risk of being reductionistic yeah when creating a definition for humor you know if you do a quick google search if you again scour the scientific literature you're going to see a lot of reductionism to physiological responding. You're going to see like your spleen collapses and then, you know, some <laughs> stuff like gets released in your brain that has all these health benefits and yada, yada. 
I think, you know, the closest thing I can say is that it's this multi-level behavior that's selected at multiple levels that is this uh it's multifunctional right it there is different functions to it and each of them is somewhat unique so to capture it in one sitting is really challenging right there is a version of humor where there is a tension and distension there's a version of humor that is just silly and it's really you know there's a version of humor that is deeply rooted in language and inseparable from words you know absurdities and things like that so it's challenging to really land on a definition and i i think there's a risk of when you science too hard on things like humor you maybe miss some of the completeness of it i think there's a risk of reducing it you know across any scientifically valid domain yeah i mean i was gonna say i think if you would like it's perfectly acceptable in a topic like this to be sort of vague and subjective about it and just give a definition that seems to sort of capture so in the u.s version of the office and one scene the one scene where ricky gervais comes on set and he says humor or comedy and he says it's where the mind goes to tickle itself and i actually thought like that's that's kind of a that's kind of an okay definition from my standpoint because sure. you're sort of mostly just saying that Humor is like a fun thing to do and we do it because it's fun and it's like a way of having fun. And that's about as specific as we need to be about it potentially. Right. Yeah. I have a, another quote that laughter is the manifestation of a relaxation of the spirit. And <laughs> awesome. that's kind of an interesting thought. I mean, I think that what's common to most humor is that there's a sense of really being in, safe inside of an idea, right? which can be really problematic when you're dealing with things like edgy humor. You know, there is that sense of relaxation embedded in the humor response, but something is bizarre, something is maybe kind of scary, something is askew, right? And inside of that, when there's some sense of diffusion, you might, you're likely to see humor, right? Even if it's really dark sometimes. You know, you could be criticized for bringing up a recent tragedy and making light of it. So I think that comes from when you're laughing, you're sort of accepting something in a way that is interesting and bound to, you know, a kind of very basic Pavlovian response, right? A, yeah. a conditioned response. It feels like it's out of your control. Like a reflex. It does. I mean, it has a sense, it has a feeling of reflexivity, right? There's clearly evidence to suggest that these things are very clearly shaped, but when it happens to you, it feels out of your control, which is one of the things that makes it so interesting. One thing I was thinking about, and I'd like to ask you about like types of comedy, types of humor, that sort of thing. Yeah quickly before I do that, the relative importance of like truth inside of humor. I always thought that you could sort of break down comedy into comedy about things that are true and comedy about things that are, aren't true. I've found that I think there's more gray area than that, but that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it seems like a lot of the most successful comedians and some of the best comedians, they're able to really capitalize on like the truth of a situation. Yeah. You know, and, but I always appreciate a good exaggerated quip <laughs> so yeah i i think my stance on that is that you know we think of really s smart humor i mean i think there's a kind of there's classes of humor right and they're certainly culturally bound but you know the kind of humor that other comedians look up to has certain features and those features are that you're tapping into something that's available to everybody 
So you're, you know, you're tapping into the everyday experience of things that are right in front of every person who walks by them, right? Mitch Hedberg has, you know, a, a joke that's often repeated and it's like, I like escalators because an escalator can never break. It can only become stairs, <laughs> right? We all, we all ride escalators every day. This information that an escalator turns into stairs when it stops is available to everybody that you pass on the street. But a lot of comedians will look at Mitch Hedberg and his jokes and they think of them in the same way that you might think of good literature. You know, the ability to interact with things that are mundane and everyday and turn them into something exciting is something that is often revered inside of the comedian, you know, especially sort of, you know, especially in the snooty, quote unquote, like comedian communities. You know, you don't want a comedian who throws out cliches, right? Like the Carlos Mencias of the world who tell the same joke and they have the same material. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's, you know, it's common knowledge that the if you're a stand-up comedian, you would probably look down on Carlos Mencia, you know, for very distinct features that could be applied to just about anybody, right? The get-or-done kinds of jokes of the world that are so... they're obvious and they're not complicated you know it's sweet if they were flavors they would be you know desserts that have lack complexity if they were pieces of writing if they were movies they would be action movies you know they wouldn't (laughs) and if they were pieces of writing they would be like you know romance novels or something like that where the material you know as opposed to moby dick or something like that you know where we look at literature differently than we look at other books and the reason is there's complexity embedded in the everyday you know moby dick is not a book about chasing a whale you know it's it's much more than that and the level of analysis shifts when you're looking at sort of what makes something you know so is i don't know about this truth not truth thing though because is moby dick true it doesn't matter you know it's somebody's experience and it's a take on the world and the reason it's so valued is because there's nothing new added there's no smart people words but there's a rearranging of events and stimuli that is very unique to that person right and i think that there's something magic in that and particularly people tend to revere people who can do this quickly right so most people are familiar with whose line is it anyway and sort of short form Improv. Short form improv is a form that a lot of people are familiar with, right? Right, So you take this prop and then you turn it into a hat and oh my gosh, you did something unique, unique to you or a select group of people Mm -hmm. with something that we all see. We all have this in front of us, but you know, the people in the audience didn't think of this thing as a hat until it was presented to them, right? And that, that is a comedian and a person that you, you know, speaking of your intelligence episode, it, that's a person we would say is smart, right? That they are quick, they're sharp, ah. they're using things that are available to everybody in ways that not everybody uses them. And actually, if you were to, you know, give everybody this same prop, probably very few people would use it in those ways. I mean, that's what you would think, you know, you would have to think that those are the comedians that are going to stick around. They consistently do things that, very few people would do if presented with the same opportunity. 
sort of adapt quickly to the circumstance. Yeah, um, there is a there is a form of improv that's a little more underground, quote unquote. You know, not to get all high and pious on my comedic chops, <laughs> but you know, things like comedy bang bang. Uh, mm-hmm. There are shows where the objective is for two people to sit down and maybe one of them takes on a character. Right? They turn into a radio host that has an outlandish backstory, right? Like me. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So, you know, you may be, I'm this radio host. Like, uh, let's say the character is like uh, a radio host from uh, public radio, right? Who's very left-leaning and it has a very clear, distinct kind of picture. In long-form improv, they'd spend an hour and a half trying to like work out that character and they will revisit things that happen early. And it's sort of like a jousting that happens between the host and the character because the sort of objective is to poke holes in that character on the part of the host. Right. So like, where were you born? Right. And later they may say, you know, they may come up with some crazy idea for where they were born. Like I was born you know, in a Portland coffee shop, right? Which is what that character would do. That's the most extreme liberal left-leaning thing that that person could do. So, <laughs> you know, and so later they may bring that back up, right? And in the middle of that, they've created an hour of other materials. And now the host wants to revisit where they were born because it's a challenge put forth to that character, right? Like, I want you to pick up that character, remember the features that you set out, remember your backstory, and it's sort of like a joust, you know, uh, it's a fight. It's very disagreeable humor because they're testing the limits of that comedian. It's an interesting dynamic that I, I tend to like. You know, it's not for everybody and it can fall flat really easily, right? I think a lot of humor, you know, a lot of humor can fall flat. You know, we forget the Saturday Night Live skits that weren't funny, but we tend to remember the one or two that were really good. I think... Uh jousting thing i was thinking about was the if you've ever there was i don't know if they've done a couple times but with uh, seth meyers and uh, fred armerson and uh, seth meyers is sort of asking uh, fred fred armerson is coming at this with the perspective that he's seen every tv show that's available and so seth meyers will just pick like one of the most obscure ones he can and ask him about it right and then fred armerson will just make up a description totally. about it and he'll yeah. go into like this super like in-depth a review of it and it's completely nonsense yeah and I, that's good. why i really love long form improv is that you see you know you see people trying to put things together in really interesting ways and being challenged right you know it's the same reason why we think of rappers who are able to there's a reason why if you're going to test a rapper and you're part of that you know community the test of a rapper is you get out on the street and you battle, right? You you go, well, I don't know how, I don't know anything. I don't pretend to know anything Sarah, about... Are you are you part of this, the rap battles? <laughs> but what would make you a good rapper? You know, what would make, what would be hard to argue the merit of your rap abilities is the ability to string together coherent statements that stretch a person's repertoire, right? Again, you're interacting with things that people every day in their everyday world interact with. And you're trying to, through your words, get people to experience those things differently. And when you're successful at that and you can do it on the fly, you know, that's, that's the things that, you know, when you think about when people talk about Eminem's history and, you know, talk about it in a good light, they tend to talk about he battled people all the time and he was the best at it. And he could just come up with these rhymes off the top of his head and 
they would be amazing and they would be different than what anybody else would say, right? They wouldn't be cliched in any way. They would have these certain features. I think, you know, good comedy, like good literature, like good rap, like good art is all this thing that actually Skinner talks about of like staying inside of people's established repertoires. You know, you're interacting with things that everybody's familiar with but you're also stretching the repertoire, right? So I'm not going to go to a medical conference and go to a talk about spinal surgery because it's too far outside of my repertoire. It wouldn't be interesting to me. But to do something like, you know, hopefully that's what this podcast is doing, right? Uh You're reaching a community that has shared interests with you and they have an established repertoire in interacting with science and, and being skeptical of things and the features of your show should you know what your show should do is stay inside of people's repertoire make sense and be interesting right to people talk about things that they have some history with right and yet stretch that history right and so your obligation as a podcast host is to do your research to provide good information and to put those subtle stretches and repertoire into your show that's what i'm trying to do today you know is (laughs) you know i don't know how how successful i am at it but that's the idea, right? Is to stay in the bubble, but move the bubble. Right. You know, and I think that's really common in a lot of art. And, y- you know, you see, you know, paintings get criticized for just being like a red blob on a piece of paper. Right. And so, you know, the argument is around is, is that what's happening? Is somebody interacting with things in a unique way or is it, you know, or are they too up their own ass? Is that, <laughs> you know, I think that's what you're risking, you know? If you wouldn't mind, just go through like, because you listed a few of these, but just in sort of a listed format or however you want to do it, but describe like what are types of humor and comedy that, that people use to try and make people laugh. I'll read through my list really quick, just so you have that as like a way to interact with this, but you can say it however you want. So the ones that I found that some of these I thought of and some of them I actually saw like written down that people suggested were like put down humor where they're essentially criticizing other people. Yeah. Angry humor where they're just yelling about something. That's one I kind of, kind of I'm thinking like Lewis Black sort of thing. Oh, interesting. Self-deprecating humor is, I think, very common. One they called bonding humor, which was described as simply being just sort of making jokes about things in general. Physical humor, obviously the physical comedy of like injuring yourself and poking people's eyes. Another one they described as laughing at life, which I didn't see is totally different from bonding humor, but generally people who are just sort of always find something to laugh about and always, you know, find things funny. And then I don't know if this is like a type of humor, but like a strategy of the callback sort of thing. Yeah. Interesting. I think mine are much more broad. Okay. You know, I think if I had to put it into really broad functions, I think one of them is tension, distension. Okay. You know, and that would hit on a lot of things, right? I mean, that gets you physical humor because physical humor is that physical humor is only funny if the person isn't genuinely hurt. You know, like a car crash is not funny. Right. right? But maybe, I mean, maybe it is, right? (laughs) If you see the person walk away and like they're drunk and they run into a pole and they stumble out of their car, that might be funny. But you would want to know, like, is that person okay? You know, there has to be that distension present in physical humor in order for it to be funny. You know, a good story that maybe accompanies that is the Three Stooges used to get like hit in the face when they went in the public. You know, I mean, it was like, There's sort of like the true Hollywood story of the Three Stooges and it's this terrible like they're not immune to physical pain when they're real human beings. Right. But they do these outlandish things and hit each other over the heads with mallets and shit. Be funny. To be funny. And that's only okay because they're okay, Right. So you need that distension in order for something to be funny in order for physical humor to work. The person has to ultimately 
be okay at the end of it. I think for the most part, unless you're a sadistic weirdo, <laughs> you know, which maybe I don't know, maybe, maybe you're not, you're okay with them not being okay. Right. But at the end of it, you, the, the viewer, the listener have to be okay with what happened in order for something to be funny, which is why when your friend falls ice skating for the first time, they're not okay being hurt and you're laughing and that's offensive to them, right? Because you're you're saying you're fine, you know, like right. this is particularly likely for kids. Like I might laugh at myself if I fall on the ice now because right. I know I'm okay. But if I'm a kid and I knock the wind out of myself or something and I'm feeling not okay, I'm not laughing, you're laughing, that's a problem, right? That becomes <laughs> gotcha. something that I get upset about. So I think I think the first one that I have is sort of this, you know, just very speaking very loosely, a metaphorical like release valve. For a moment of tension that occurred and now there's some sort of recognition, however subtle, that things are okay and we're okay. We're fine. Right. And you nice. can see this kind of humor. I mean, it's, I wouldn't even call it humor, but people who stress laugh, right? People who laugh when in so awkward social situations. Right. It's kind of one of my pet peeves, honestly, is <laughs> people who laugh when they're nervous. <laughs> I feel bad about it. You know, I feel like a bad person when I judge somebody for doing that. But y that's what's happening, right? The, that's, you know, functionally, it's this automatically maintained response that's trying for that person is functioning to relieve anxiety potentially, right? is trying to relieve the stress of being in a social situation. So nervous laughter is sort of, you know, falls under the same heading. You know, and I think it has to follow a certain pattern in order to be funny, but I think this this idea of tension and distension is one kind of humor that is pretty broadly applicable. Okay. What else you got? I do have laughter as interacting with an awareness of superiority over others, right? To laugh at I think is a kind of comedy, especially, you know, it's something that we're trying to get better at, but that's something that's available to us, you know, to laugh at somebody is, let's say I'm a cage fighter and I think my opponent isn't very strong, right? Mm -hmm. I, I may, when we interact with each other, I may push him and laugh, right? Sort of because, the movie villain thing of like, right. I've got <laughs> yeah. the power here. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, the, you guffaw <laughs> when at the... You know, and it's common in sort of animes too, right? The person, one, one character stands with their arms crossed, confident and, and <laughs>, laughs at the idea of even bothering to fight this other person. Another kind of, you know, I think this, this hits on this tension, distension piece as well is hysteria. I think hysteria is really interesting, right? I experienced, you know, like, well, I'll get really personal, I <laughs> guess. So I had a girlfriend and she was cheating on me, right? And she texted me from inside the house. We were both inside the same house. She texted me that like, hey, I'm cheating on you. I don't want to be with you anymore. Right. And it was so surprising and so <laughs> sad. You know, I didn't see it coming. And it was so sad. But I called my parents and like, I had, you know, we live together. And so I called my parents and I was like, hey, uh, you know, trying to explain to them, like, I need, I need you to pick me up and like, take me home, <laughs> take me to your house. <laughs> My significant other just told me that she's cheating on me and I couldn't even get it out. Like I was laughing hysterically. <laughs> I was laughing so hard at, you know, the absurdity of the whole situation and how I was just caught so off guard that, you know, maybe, I mean, it's, it's certainly very, it's a stretch. I'm not being very technical and I'm not citing anything important, right. but you know, it feels like at a certain point when things get really hard, like if you're fighting in the Vietnam war, you know, like 
you're going to see people get hysterical, right? Who their means of releasing the tension of a very extreme circumstance is to be like the Joker, right? right? To laugh, you know, to be a caricature of laughter. I think that's an interesting phenomenon. And yeah. it's a very extreme version of, you know, I don't know that hysteria takes on other forms than laughing at the absurdity of the things that are happening. You know, if you were to be tortured, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and you saw no way out of it, one thing that you might do is just laugh, right? Like, laugh hysterically i hope i never find out <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean i you know i i laughed hysterically just when i broke up with somebody so i could only imagine how <laughs> bit poorly i would fare under torture but you know i think uh, laughing hysterically takes on that function of sort of diffusing in the only mean you know through this sort of automatic function of i don't know it's kind of an interesting idea right sure oh and then you know, the other one that I would just say is, you know, uh, absurdities. I think a really, you know, this idea that laughter is the product of tension and distension, I think is too simplistic. And it's something that behavior analysts are guilty of just sort of purveying as this is what laughter is. In the same way that a neurologist might say it's the release of chemicals and these neurological processes. I think there's a risk as a behavior analyst and a person looking at humor at a certain level of analysis that really lends itself to this pitfall of really oversimplifying the functions of humor, right? That's so complex. It's so easy to think of, you know, really nuanced features of humor. But I would say the other one is super broad, but is just general absurdity in relations, right? So I think that hits on one of the ones that you identified as well, but it's just a genuinely unique relational stimulus that is expanding the repertoire of the person, right? So Jokes, you know, that are only funny once, they don't have that feature of tension, distension. It doesn't, I don't think that's a necessary feature. Something can catch you off guard. Like if I were to fart right now, that might be funny, but there was no buildup. Like that's punchline first, right? right. <laughs> like, you know, the weird event. Like if I just saw somebody walking with like something crazy on their head, I might laugh. And there's no, there's no buildup. There's no setup for the joke. It's just absurd. Yeah. Right. It's this just this relationship between the environment that we're not used to that I'm trying to make sense of. Right. So I think that that's one and that tends to be really high level comedy. It can be right. And it's it's one where now we're subjecting ourselves to the same kinds of criticisms that might beget or befall a writer of literature or something like that. I mean, if you're really just interacting with people's words and how stimuli are coming together in absurd ways, I think you see sort of unique versions of humor that are really hard to chalk up to the same kind of thing as peekaboo. Sure. It makes me think of Portlandia and some of their skits are, seemed like they, a lot of the absurdity. Yeah. Is in there. And there's one in this most recent season at the time of this recording where they see a van for sale and it's like an RV or something like that. And they both have these separate fantasies about like what life would be like if they decided to, to buy that van and live in it. And one of them is, this happy-go-lucky, everything's awesome, the world's our oyster sort of thing. And then the other one is like homeless living under a tunnel eating like canned hot dogs for dinner. Right, <laughs> and right. She's like, a trucker pulls up and she's like, uh, I'm leaving and uh, F you. And like gets in the truck and just drives away. And then they both kind of look at each other like, meh, probably not for us. And then they just walk away from it. But they take those sort of like really silly things and just like blow them up right. into huge proportions. Yeah, I think, you know, this is the kind of humor that 
has gotten the holy grail or what is it uh monty python like sort of capitalizes on this kind of idea oh yeah what is your favorite color (laughs) right i mean it's just absurd right and it's it would be hard it would be a stretch to say that there's a tension distension there right i mean it's just the absurdity of the things being presented is so well pieced together that the, the somehow the response is to laugh you know, one that comes to mind for me is actually maybe an underrated comedy nowadays, which is uh, Naked Gun movies. Uh, I love with, the Naked Gun movies, yeah. And they're like, so good. Airplane and yeah, Hot that, Shots, that, that class sort of, of movies just has so much bang for your buck. You Have know? you seen the Angie Tribeca show? No, I it, haven't. It's like a television show version of N- Naked Gun, really more like really? Naked Gun than anything. Oh, man. Um, it is, it, I absolutely love it. Watch it all the time. There's just, there's so many hilarious things that it's like every second is yeah. there's an embedded joke somewhere. Right. Um, there's one where so they have one character who at every police station around the country they go to, it's played by the same guy. And at one point he shows up from one precinct to the other. And so as they cut from scene of him in the doorway talking to the main one in the office, he like runs over to his new position and puts on his wig to <laughs> be the, uh, yeah, yeah. To, you see him make that transition. And uh, he's like, don't worry about my hair. <laughs> and another joke they had in there that just killed me because they mo- a lot of the humor in that show goes like this. But they're talking; these two characters randomly have a child together, for, like no particular reason, just sort of happens, and then that you never see that kid again. But they still talk about it sometimes. But there is one part in particular that someone asks him about the kid, and they said, "Oh yeah, we sent him to a private school upstate." And another one says, "Yeah, we really hope he gets in." And <laughs> 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 just these like these one-off things that happen really fast like that throughout the whole show. Right. I would highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's an interesting it's an interesting style of humor, and it it's hard to really see, you know. If you were to reduce it to something and say why is why does this occur, you know, I think you would have to delve into like you know the survival value of these kinds of things. And as languaging humans, you know, it's gonna get you somewhere if you can put things together in new ways, right? If you can test new ideas and and try things in specific formats, you're gonna you're gonna do okay. So it's an interesting thing with language is that when you interact so deeply with language like humans do, suddenly a lot of your success and the reinforcers that you contact are sort of wrapped up in your ability to language. And comedy is sort of this unique iteration of that coming together of language and unique relations that you're trying to put together as a person. That's what's happening with these kinds of things, I get. Well, it, you know, that's not what's happening, but that's a version of what happens. Early, you mentioned this, so I want to give you an opportunity to sort of speak to this now, but the idea of why we roast people. Yeah. And so the, like, right. the concept of roasting. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's certainly something that can go wrong very fast, right? Yeah. Um, and all it takes is for the person, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, ver- a much elaborated and verbalized version of when somebody falls, of physical humor, right? When somebody falls over, they could be hurt and it could not be funny at all. Uh, or it could be that they're okay. Um, you know, they experience some discomfort, but they're fine now. And that is funny. Roasts have a similar sort of feature, right? Roasts are funny when the person is a good sport about being roasted. And in fact, it's something that can, you know, like I like being roasted. I love it. It's hilarious because it means that, you know, somebody has cared enough about you and has looked into your life and they know you well enough to be able to caricaturize some of your features. 
And that's flattering, right? It means you exist, you matter, you know, and so that can be looked at as a sign of like, in order for somebody to roast me, they have to really know me, right? Which is why, you know, you see things online, like on Reddit, there's a roast me subreddit, right? And people post pictures of themselves and try to tell a brief story about where they're at in their lives. And then other people will try to poke fun at it. But most of them are very unsatisfactory because you don't know the person, right? They're... They're just like, you look like a baby, you know, and, and they're right. super, you know, they're cool. You know, sometimes you get one or two gems that really piece something together in a way, you know, like you look like ex celebrity, blah, blah, blah. You know, like they tacked a really good relation between right. a series of things. But, you know, very often these fall flat because you don't know anything about these people. The only thing you have to go off of is a picture and a brief description. Really, in order to roast somebody, you have to to do a good job. You have to have some body of work to interact, you know, some sort of level of interaction with that person. And I think, you know, the flattering feature, if you can get past the mean things, is that somebody has investigated you to the point where they can now be you, act as you, right? Behaviorally, take on some of your features and exaggerate them. I think then, uh, I'd love to give you to, to sort of talk, like, what are the critical features of, like, a good roast versus where does it start to go wrong? Yeah, I mean, you know, rule number one is the person has to be a good sport. Like, don't roast someone who's not going to laugh about it. Yeah, I mean, that would just be terrible, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, in, or at least, you know, you would have to have some kind of a weird sense of humor to really, you know, see somebody who's not enjoying their own roast and to derive humor, especially if you're close to that person, right? If it's a celebrity, you can distance yourself from their feelings enough that you're okay with them feeling bad right if somebody <laughs> sure. were to roast kim kardashian or something like that like i don't care about how she feels i don't <laughs> care so i'm okay with her being mad at the end of her roast one good example so there was a lot of controversy around the latest white house correspondence dinner right people wrote articles like is it okay to roast the president right because part of the problem is he wasn't a good sport you know, I graphically displayed the rate of offensive and like jokes that are targeted at, you know, certain people. Right. So, you know, if you do if you do the White House Correspondence Dinner, there's nothing stopping you from just telling weird jokes that, you know, have nothing to do with hurting other people's feelings. But more and more with the Colbert's of the world and things like that, these White House Correspondence Dinners have turned into roasts of the president. Right. And Obama was totally fine being roasted. And to be fair, a lot of the roasts were safe. They weren't very mean. Right. It was sure. hard to find things that were truly mean about this president. There weren't these like egregious exaggerations of, you know, like uh, locking kids in cages. You know, like there were there wasn't a lot of material to, be, you know, they had this kind of play safe as a function of the material that was provided to them. And, you know, in this latest one, there were five jokes directed, obviously, primarily at Republicans mm -hmm. uh, throughout the entire thing. And five a minute is like a machine gun of jokes. I mean, that is yeah. just so fast. And you watch it. It was Michelle Wolf. Really good roast. Like, I laughed hysterically. I watched it multiple times. <laughs> I coded it. You know, it raised this question to me of when the Republicans say we're being treated unfairly, we're being roasted too too hard and too close to home you're hitting these metaphorical nerves a little too hard i wanted to see like is that a fair criticism you know like if i held those views and not to caricaturize them but if i really held republican views would i be upset 
watching this. And I think, you know, as much as I enjoyed that roast, I think the answer is yes. And the answer is yes, because the parties on the other side are not okay with what was happening. You know, I think it's a little, a little too personal, you know, and, and it's maybe something where both sides are feeling like maybe these things aren't okay to make fun of, right? Like maybe we're not okay, right? There's this, yeah. there's not this enough distension and there's not enough distance between the event. It's too soon, quote unquote, right? <laughs> Just become a joke in and of itself. Right. There's a audience for jokes that are too soon, right? And they tend to be, you know, comedically oriented people, you know, comedians, right? And people like that might really interact with very, very, very serious things and do so in a way that they're trying to relieve the tension of the situation and south park did that bit where there was like after it's been 23.7 years then you can laugh at something and i think they were poking fun of that exact idea that there's like a period of time that is too soon and everybody is agreed upon what that is yeah so like oh aids are fun aids is funny now (laughs) yeah and you know i have i gotta say like i have a hard time not sneaking in really subtle jokes in very serious situations like you know, I made a terrible joke about my aunt had died and I was like hanging out with my cousins who I was really close with. And, you know, and at the same time, I, my Xbox account had been suspended and I had like a username that was offensive that got banned. And I was sad that my funny username got banned. And so we were having I was having dinner with my cousins. Everybody was crying. It was really emotional. And I was present with those emotions. I was being a good, you know, I was, I, I um, was being a good mourner for the most part, but I couldn't help but to try to diffuse the sadness and the, the you know, this profound, you know, event, right? By saying like, you know, you think it's bad that you lost your mom. I lost my Xbox account, right? <laughs> Which was the worst joke ever, but it worked, right? Like my cousins were really, you know, it's such an absurd idea, the only way that's okay is you recognize that a human life is obviously more important than an Xbox right. account, yeah. right? But that would not be funny if that were too close to home, right? If Sort of an elaborated version of you think that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that the idea of trying to relieve tension is at the heart of a lot of these jokes and being okay with these kinds of things. You know, I think that's a, that's a movement and in, in today's culture is like, you know, is PC culture, you know, with all of its sort of positives and negatives is it bringing us to a place where we're not able to diffuse tense situations through humor i was going to ask that because on the one hand i think that there is an a there is an appropriate consideration for not just offending people by saying horrible things to them right yeah um, and on the other hand, like one of the things that I, I was I was fortunate to point out to someone who I think belongs to some of those cultures that can be easily offended is that way of being where you everything has to be PC and there's no laughing at the sort of foibles of certain cultures and whatnot. Yeah, is that has like given the people the trolls of the world all the fuel they need yeah. to start fires. No, absolutely. And so like people can take that and you know not necessarily in the service of of actually creating a humorous situation but literally just like trying to hurt people yeah. by being offensive to them. Right. And so I'm like you just like on the one hand I get being sensitive to people and on the other hand I think I would say like try and have thick skin as much as much as it makes sense to do that. Like, I think as someone who's a vegan that I heard, I, I love jokes about vegans and, and how ridiculous yeah. they are. And yeah, there's, totally. I heard one recently that I just love. They're saying like, oh, I got this gluten-free, sugar-free vegan ice cream. It was just ice cubes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> 
uh, botched the delivery of that, but you know, it was it was really good. Um, <laughs> sort of joke I just right. thought was great. And so, you know, I I feel like on the one hand, like just saying like, oh, vegans are the worst people. We hate them. We should put them all in concentration camps and, yeah. and decapitate them. Is different from like making jokes sure. about how like how silly some of the ideas sound to someone coming from a sort of more mainstream culture would be and finding the balance in that but on the, at the same time like yeah i think that i do worry also the the political correctness thing and I, I it's created i think it's opposite monster on the other side yeah like people dedicated to being politically incorrect <laughs> and of course it did of course it will right. you know it's counter control at its finest it's very it's very obvious that if you're not okay with people telling jokes about you that's the best way to invoke those kinds of jokes. I mean, yeah. and in the political climate, there's so much counter control embedded, you know, like a lot of this NFL kneeling thing is that right. It's not about it's counter control. Yeah. Right. The vice president shows up to a football game and essentially says like, you know, like challenge. He's, he's setting out a challenge, right? He's yeah. saying like, you know, disrespect America in the presence of me, I'm here at the game. Yeah. And of, you're, you're of God. <laughs> the the response is, of course, do it more. Do yeah. <laughs> it extra, kneel super hard. Lay right? face down like, on the ground. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, there's no way I wouldn't, right? Yeah, there's right. no way I would be like, oh, he's here, and he might get offended if we do that this time. Yeah. Now you're looking for signs of damage. And that's, you know, and it's to laugh at. It's to, it's to feel this air of superiority. It doesn't matter, you know, in all of those contexts. Trolls, the, the idea is to is to interact with somebody who you know doesn't get it or you know doesn't interact with the humor or the words or the logic at the same level that you do you are you're above them right and i think that that's a problem in you know being humorous or at least attempting to but at, yeah at the same time a lot of humor has this a lot of parallels to you know some movements that are in therapy right so acceptance and commitment and acceptance in particular, right? So sure. acceptance and commitment therapy sort of says like you should be cool with really terrible things, right? It's not the thoughts, it's not the actions, it's not the events that are in themselves leading to suffering. It's your inability to accept those things that is creating suffering. And, you know, that creates fusion between you and those events. And a lot of the words that are sort of coming out in PC culture and a lot of the constructs are things like triggers, right? Which metaphorically suggest an if-then relationship between the event and your emotional response to it. Right. I mean, the, you know, I have a problem with the word trigger to an extent because it doesn't lend itself to a metaphorical idea of acceptance, of being okay with something despite the thing being terrible. Right. Right. So, you know, I, it's not to take away from the impact of certain events and what they do to people and what they, you know, how they impact people. But the metaphor of a trigger suggests that control is out of your hands. Right. The, if this event were to happen, there is only one inevitable thing. And that's something that psychologists work very hard, you know, with things like exposure therapy to rid people of. To, right, you know these kinds of ideas. Yeah, I love what you're saying inside of that, and I think that just I want to wrap a little bit, a, a few more words around it to make sure that to really drive the point home and just sort of bolster what you've already said, which is that psychologically speaking, where people we tend to see that people experience suffering and pain, and where you see the psychological rigidity, it's almost like this the concept of triggers in particular, and yeah, I, I, again hitting on what you said, which is that it's not saying that you shouldn't be sensitive to something that someone else is sensitive to. 
but it's it's that idea that we're specifically promoting the idea that you will stick to being rigid to that thing. Right. So it's like we want to enforce the concept that you're never going to get over this and just bend the world around it as much as we possibly can rather than, you know, this is something that right now was painful and like hopefully you as a person can work through it. You know, it's sort of the I'd rather the world change than me change attitude that yes. I, I think a lot of people have about various things. And, you know, I've seen this before being someone who's worked with children with autism quite a bit. I've seen the people who are like, let's teach these people as many adaptive skills as possible so they can go out and face a world that's not necessarily prepared to deal with them. And the other group of people who are like, let's change the entire world. So it's ready to prepare for that one person. Yeah. And to the latter, I'm just like, I don't see that being a practical solution. You know, I think that on the one hand, having people be sensitive to the fact that there are people out here who are going to struggle with this a little bit more is probably a good thing. And then on the other hand, like teaching those people that you're going to have to deal with life that comes up that, you know, is not going to look as safe as it does here. Otherwise, you're not going to be successful. So. Yeah. And the other side of that is, you know, you certainly don't want to take the perspective. Well, I mean, maybe some do that, you know, there's this cliche about millennials that exaggerates that feature of us. Right. Yeah. I guess us. Right. Are we <laughs> technically. Well, yeah, technically yes. are, yeah. You know, I I have a friend who's the same age as me and he doesn't he t- feel like millennials <laughs> can't deal with their emotions and blah, blah, blah. I think I think that's a runaway train and that's a gross oversimplification of this situation. And what's happening but you know there is a risk that in avoiding aversive events in your life you're also not fostering a ability to accept and to be okay with things that are bad you know that are probably inevitably going to happen right like you know you're going to contact things that suck in life and the ability to be okay with them is one of the things that predicts success you know no matter how you package that grit right is right. how some people are kind of capitalizing on it now my daughter actually her school like their their motto was like do you have grit right cool. so like yeah kind of interesting right yeah. so there's counterculture to that culture even right yeah. and there's people with good ideas who are saying our kids aren't okay enough with you know aversive events they get too quickly down on themselves they're too defensive they're too this or that. So, you know, I think the culture will work it out, but I think you see extremes on both sides of this issue, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The message I think that gets heard in saying things like having grit, having a thick skin, accepting things when they suck is not to say that like, well, you know, life just sucks. Don't do anything about it. Like just, you know, you have your station in life and that's where you should be. It's more about like, if you're going to be able to I think experience this successfully in a way that you can move forward it with it and still like have a life afterward that's yeah. meaningful. It's being able to be flexible with that situation and it's not condoning terrible things that happen. It's not saying like it's okay, it's just going to happen, we should never do anything about it. It's saying that if we're going to deal with it in the moments that being flexible is sort of the way to be able to move forward and actually make some kind of meaningful change. Right. And you know rather than just you know, sit down and, and cry and hope that the world will decide that it feels bad about making you cry and, and change its ways because it's just not never going to happen. Right. That kind of took a little bit different direction than I was expecting. But yeah, I, I mean, I kind of knew like, you know, I kind of knew we would head down these rabbit holes because humor parallels so many important things in life, you know, like acceptance. Right. You know, and and sadness and deep, profound emotions. Right. The difference between humor and tragedy is you know, time, right? As what, whatever that saying goes, like, yeah. you know, tragedy plus time equals humor. Oh, yeah. 
and the time the amount of time is less and less and you know it's it's probably a direct function of how truly tragic that event is to you right which is why you know historic this isn't new the idea that humor and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable fluctuates in a culture is common right i mean you can think of like ancient cultures and you could see how very easily culturally people don't laugh as often right it's important to be serious it's you know it's important to treat others with you would never laugh at the queen like historically speaking yeah Yeah. absolutely and that's that's almost shaped the culture of like british humor as largely self-deprecating one of my favorite quotes i i need to look into who this is i think it's one of the members of the monty python group yeah he has a quote essentially saying like he watched animal house or what is it? Is it Animal House? What's the movie with the fraternity guys? I think it's Animal House. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, Animal House. And there's like the big slobbery like booger guy. Yeah. Right? Like who's this big waste station. Like he just drinks whiskey by the handle. Right? And <laughs> and burps loudly in other people's faces. Right. And they run into a group of nerds. Right? Like quote unquote nerds. Like mm-hmm. these sort of thin people with pocket protectors and you know, the guy like knocks the tray out of their hands and treats them very rudely. And American audiences laughed at that, right? Mm-hmm. Like to laugh at nerds, right? And this guy from Monty Python essentially said like, you know what the difference between American and British humor is, is in a British comedy, you're taking the perspective of the nerd, right? You're, you're sort of like, the story is about the nerd getting, you're Mr. Beaning, right? You're failing, you're self-deprecating, right? There's a lot of failure in British humor. There's a lot of, you know, people encountering problems and being not being able to comprehend what's going on, like the Mr. Beans of the world, right? And American humor for a while was very different and, you know, notably different. And that's sort of an example of that, you know. Americans were like these grungy, bully, push you around kind of brand to their humor. And the British had sort of the exact opposite. There's very like soft spoken underneath all all of this is something funny right yeah coming from a deep acceptance of what it is to fail you know there's a couple of things that um, we could turn to in the time we have left one is i heard this actually probably a couple years ago now but people who tried to like come up for a scientific formula for a joke and like how jokes work it's terrible it's a terrible (laughs) idea right and i sort of thought like first of all i i think that conceptually speaking it's just not possible on the one hand, as you pointed out correctly so many times, is that it is going to be cultural, culturally dependent and the culture changes over time and in like particular spaces, even inside of a culture. Right. So things that are relevant to a culture on the West Coast may not be on the East Coast of the United States right. or even in like the slums of a city versus the more affluent areas of the city. You're going to have different types of culture where types of comedy will capitalize on the experiences in those areas right and so the idea that you can just put together a formula that's going to mean the same thing every time implies that humor is an objective thing that is the same every time yeah it's never it's never going to happen and it's a it's just a really bad idea even capturing the functions of comedy is a risky business and it's something that i was kind of timid and even putting out there as constructs right like who's to say this tension distension thing is always going to be true. Right. And it, well, as you said, it's, it's sort of a metaphor to just sort of describe what seems to be going on a lot of the time. Right. You know, but from it could, your perspective, so. you know, it could not be, you know, the sure. functions of humor change. They, they adapt, they compound, they build upon each other. And culturally, you know, what's funny one minute 
brings about counterculture almost inevitably sure. right if long form comedy is what's hip and what most people are into there's going to be a market for like one liners you know yeah and i think that that's sort of the nature of the business is it's the same of most arts right when everybody's being super wordy and super descriptive you get drunk and write like five words and that's a chapter send out a tweet right <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean so you know it's common in a lot of the arts and in a lot of you know, cultural features of how we put language out into the world. So yeah, it's it's really, you know, I think one thing that is current in today's sort of like comedian culture is bombing, right? So it's going to go there. Yeah. Bombing deliberately is kind of an interesting idea, and right? I mean, basically like setting up a joke that doesn't work. Not just one joke, but oh. an entire set, oh, right? Okay. So like Stu, I stand up in front of an audience of 300 people. I try to make them laugh. They're not laughing at anything. And for 10 minutes, I have to try to get through this miserable experience of people booing and people heckling, right? And starting this sort of back and forth that I'm not comfortable with. And now you're getting on the features of a comedian where I would be proud to have gotten through that, right? And it's sort of a badge of honor that every comedian has, right? Of like, how many times have you bombed? Is almost as funny, is almost as important as how many times have you just absolutely hit one out of the park, right? It's sort of a, a badge of honor to, to stand in front of an audience for 10 minutes and not be able to relieve any of the tension that's building up in this room. And so you see really you know there's really poor outcomes sometimes of this of comedians doing saying really terrible things about people who are heckling them kramer comes to mind right oh, like yeah. whatever that dude's name was you know he he was unable to like relieve any of the tension that was building and his move very poorly thought out was to go so extreme that maybe it would you know get a laugh and so like you know there's this sort of trading of signs of damage between you and the audience that sometimes happens in comedy of like you're not even trying to make them laugh at this point you're trying to hurt them right you're trying to fight with them in a way that's safe in a way that's relatively safe right i mean andy kaufman right was sort of like started this a little bit of like it, people wanted him to do the voice from taxi cab or whatever that show was right and he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to be like the get her done guy, right? Yeah. Like with one, but that was his top hits, right? Were these really simple, low hanging jokes, talk silly, you know, <laughs> and, and he didn't want to, he wanted to, you know, really interact with complex things, right? Like somebody writing literature, being told to write the script for Jurassic Park. You just don't want to do it. And so his counter control was like, he'd read an entire book right he would stand <laughs> up on stage for five hours and read a book that's boring i think yeah. it was like i forget the name of the book that he read but right and prejudice yeah something like that you know and he would just get up and be like okay well i don't like any of you and here's what you're getting you're not getting anything out of me it's not going to be funny and but it'll be funny to me the only audience that matters right now is me and that's an interesting idea that now we look back and that's just funny, right? Like to me, hearing a story like that, that's hilarious. And you can see the humor in, in that situation, but it's, it emerges from a very bizarre place of somebody trying deliberately not to be funny, right? I can imagine a situation where if you can see that it doesn't reach the point where someone's getting really angry or getting hurt that it could escalate to a point well beyond what you might expect it to and remain funny for an audience right. of people trading back and forth, getting angrier and angrier, but they're still actually sort of jousting. 
and have that continue to be funny, even though, like, for most people, for them, that line would have been crossed long ago in that conversation. You know, really, when it got to calling names the first time, that would have been like, this isn't funny anymore. Like, we've crossed the line. But I can just imagine that as long as what you were describing is having that sort of the back and forth that allows it. So, going back to the idea about the formula, too, like, there is no set place at which that boundary exists. It sort of depends on how people are playing off of the situation. Yeah. And, and things can be funny in the moment, right? Like you could, you could be successful with that audience doing that kind of jousting or sparring. But also, you could do horribly, but you're reaching an audience with the story of bombing, right? Of like, hey, they didn't laugh once. Now you're on Letterman talking about how you were in front of an audience, you know, and now the story is funny, but the audience still would not think fondly of what occurred, right? So there's this sort of like meta funny, right? It's funny because it's not funny. That kind <laughs> of happens, right? It's yeah. it's it's funny how unfunny it is. Right. It's like puns. <laughs> yeah, puns. yeah, kind of. I mean, those have that feature, right? right. They can't. Yeah, I think there, there is the also sort of depending on the pun and the delivery and all of that, that most people seem to really hate puns. But if you deliver it just right, it's the fact that it's not funny that makes it funny. Yeah. I think. I, you know, one of my favorite phenomena too in the world of comedy is anti-jokes, right? Mm -hmm. So that there's a setup and then there's nothing on the other side of it, right? So like, <laughs> this is one I think I made up. I mean, not to like, look at me patting myself on my back. It's a terrible joke. So it's not too, it's, well, it's an anti-joke. So Tell it's it. supposed to be terrible. Love it. But you would say like, is your refrigerator running? And if the person says yes, you would say, wow, modern electronics sure are reliable. Right. So there's there's a response that now, you know, you have this <laughs> like imagine calling somebody, you know, and it's a similar joke to like, you know, why did, half a second. <laughs> yeah, there. what did George Washington say before he crossed the Delaware? Let's cross here. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, um, nothing interesting happens. There's right. no, you know, the and what's happening there is that the punchline or the joke, the expectation of something funny is now at strength. Right. right. And so, you know, speaking behaviorally, you're always interacting with this idea of going with the response that's not at strength. Right. Sure. The, there's this response that's embedded in the relations between the stimuli. But that for most people isn't going to be the response that pops into their head, right? And so is your refrigerator running is a joke that like people have told for so long that there's no other reason to t ask somebody that question unless right. you're setting up that terrible joke, right? Right. And so now to bring it back to like, that's cool, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> your refrigerator works <laughs> is now funny. That's the thing that is not at strength for most people, you know? <laughs> yeah. So one of the things I was thinking about inside of this is, how much it changes the dynamic for the audience when other people are laughing. Yeah. A, that's, lo a yeah. lot of people like to talk about this idea of like mirror neurons. And I, I don't think that's sure. particularly useful in this, in this context, but like we definitely, either. we definitely see that when other people laugh, I feel I have the experience certainly. And I think I've certainly seen it that other people are then more likely to laugh and how that ties into the concept of like a laugh track on comedy. No, absolutely. Yeah. And it also reminds me of like when I started watching more sort of deadpan comedies that didn't have a laugh track and then going back to old comedies like Friends where all of a sudden there's a laugh track and at first it surprised me because I, I had, hadn't been used to it for a while right. of like there just being this random group of people laughing off screen. Yeah. It sort of happened. So I, I, I think that's a, if you want to speak to that for a moment. Oh, it's super interesting. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite examples of those is like if you watch Friends without the laugh track, it's not funny at all. Like things that are absurd and that present 
as absurd. They just look psychotic in the absence of the laugh track. I mean, it's really interesting. There's like YouTube videos of like friends without laugh track and it's just people behaving very weirdly. Right. It just tur- it devolves into this very bizarre, not funny thing because yeah. the cultural support, you know, like the environmental support for laughing isn't there. Right. And I think most people would report that they tend to laugh more when they watch a comedy in the theaters. You know, it's something it's something that's maybe going away. But I would have to think, you know, I don't have any data to back this up, but I would have to think that your laughs per, you know, opportunity are going to be. You're going to be have a better batting average if you're around a, a group of people. You know, I watch some comedies in the theater and I walk away feeling pretty good about it. You see that when it releases on video and you're really disappointed. Right? <laughs> you remember this funny experience where like this was a great joke. Yeah. And part of that is now in your history. So now you laugh because of that. Having saw having seen it in the theater, it's right. funnier because of, you know, that initial contact. But, you know, I think I got, I have to think that's true, right? Yeah. I have to think that if you're sitting in the theater watching a new movie under those conditions, you're going to be, you know, cracking up. I, you know, I, I've seen comics live. I laugh so hard, right? Yeah. And it's not the same when I watch a Netflix special. Like sure. I might guffaw a thing or two and, yeah. you know, there's certainly more people who are funnier than others, but I'm not going to be on the floor laughing. Right. And my experience going to comedy shows, even ones that, you know, if I saw on TV, I might turn off, mm-hmm. but I, I'm laughing yeah. in the show, you know, so there has to be environmental support for laughing. And I think that's the general idea of a laugh track. I have to think that somebody's looked into this to the point where that, you know, that data came out like, yes, you should have a live audience that laughs. Right. You know, they probably noticed it happening and said, like, oh, let's capitalize on this yeah. rather rather than like conceptually speaking this would make sense and then put it into place yeah but i I also found just on that same sort of line of of talking is that when i i watch movies that i think are funny or that i want someone else to think are funny that i've already seen i laugh i laugh much harder if there's someone else around than i would by myself even movies that i love yeah for that reason so yeah and you know there's also other features to laughing like you know being altered by substances right it's easy you know (laughs) Sometimes you might question whether, you know, when you were in contact with, you know, substances that alter the value of certain jokes, you might look back and be like, God, was that even funny or was that a good idea? You're like, I watched Crash, hilarious movie. I was drunk at the time, but I remember it being really funny. Yeah. (laughs) Like this movie, there's a straight drama all the way through. (laughs) Right. I often find, you know, if I watch something under the influence of some substance, I often have to like rewatch it sober to see if what I experienced was you know, what I might have otherwise experienced, right? It's kind of a silly question, but, you know, my wife might be like, this isn't funny, and I think it's hilarious, but I'm also drunk, so maybe it's just because I'm drunk that I'm laughing so hard, so I might have to go back and justify why I think this is a good movie, right? I might rewatch it and and say, like, no, it it is funny. It it still is, despite these heavy environmental supports, right? Yeah. All right. So in the interest of time, I'm going to start to wrap this up. I wanted to ask you uh, for our listening audience, those people who want to be funnier, myself included, <laughs> how, uh, how do we be better at being funny? Oh, God. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's a terrible position you put me in. Uh, to be <laughs> an expert at being funny is, is you know, certainly not you know, on my resume. <laughs> Teaching people to be funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I think, you know, if uh, this is actually an interest of mine, in my research and in sort of just my experience with the field of behavior analysis is, you know, interacting with kind of unique relations between events and what, you know, it's, it's very similar to intelligence in a lot of ways because it's, it's 
to be funny, I think at least to to bring about some of the functions of comedy is to look at unique relationships between events. And, you know, the rest is kind of just you have to contact, right? You have to practice. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, things like timing and seeing which jokes work. You know, most comedians aren't funny for years, mm-hmm. right? They go out and try things and they the only thing that they're capitalizing on is this inductive process of what's getting laughs. How can I tell this joke differently to elicit some laugh, right? Or I guess rather evoke a laugh as more comfortable for me. But it's inductive. It's like hitting a baseball. You can't explain to somebody how to hit a baseball. But I think there are there are drills and practices that you could engage in to come up with sort of the basic foundations of being funny, which is to interact with unique events. And, you know, in the same way that you might do a writing exercise, if you're trying to be a writer, you might engage in some joke exercises of like, okay, what are the features of a brick? You know, and you're going to feel silly doing this, right? But like one idea would be like, Okay, so what what are the things I could do with a brick? What are some of the functions of a brick? How does a brick work? And you list the 50 easiest ones, right? And then you say like, okay, now it's time to like sweat. Now it's time to figure out like what are the ones that nobody else is going to come up with? What are the what are the ones that aren't low-hanging fruit? Mm-hmm. And if I were trying to make somebody a better writer, you know, at least a creative writer or a better comedian or just better relationally, better able to interact with complex, nuanced, subtle relations that exist in the world, I would do things like that. You know, but that doesn't get you to being funny. It gets you to interacting with the world in unique ways. The rest is practice. It's it's developing like a style, right? There's many, many different ways to be funny and you sort of have to find the one that works for you. Okay. One of my favorite comedians of all time, I if like if somebody tracked this down, I would be the happiest person on the planet. But like deadpan comedy, um, deadpan I watched comedy. I watched one. I think I was like in high school and this guy, he stands up and he's got his head down and he's like dead quiet and he gets up and waits just forever. Right. Yeah. This is this timing piece of he's just building tension, if you will. Right. By doing nothing. Yeah. Standing up there looking at his feet. It's sort of the same thing as Andy Kaufman's like, here I come to save the day, right? The, the, he's just standing up there doing nothing. And, right. then, and then Mighty Mouse says, here I come to save the day. And he goes along with it and is, has these big exaggerated movements. This comedian goes up and he's like, the first thing out of his mouth is, how much time do I have left? <laughs> like, after waiting a, this big long period of time, he essentially sort of like, you know, says that and then Everybody laughs, you know, he gets a laugh immediately, right? right? Because he's broken this tension of not speaking. And then somebody yells off from off stage, like, you have like five minutes left. And he's like, oh. you know, he sighs. And then he says, he breaks out like a cartoon, like bomb. Yeah. And he sets the timer for five minutes and he <laughs> says, now we all have five minutes. <laughs> I don't know what it was about that joke, but I just, I remember it forever, which I guess oh, leads into the next, you know, if I am an advice, if I was forced into a position of being an advice giver, I would say like contact comedy, right? Like see what other people are doing. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to really get it, get in their world, you know, in order to be a successful artist, there's just a, there's a certain feature of your job as an artist to be a part of that culture, right? To to hang out with other artists, to try your craft with them and to get it approved by their standards. Watch lots of Jerry Seinfeld is what you're saying. Oh, <laughs> you know, I'm much, I'm much more of a fan of uh, 
you know, I might get in trouble for saying, but I'm not a huge Seinfeld fan. I am a huge fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm, though, right. which it's, it's weird because they tend to be similar kinds of comedy. But but yeah, I mean, you know, I think the, the idea is to, I've, nobody is just funny in a vacuum. They they have a way about them. Right. They have a style and it tends to come out in similar ways. Sure. Um, so being around people and you have to it's like anything you learn to be funny and I don't think there's inherent about being you know there's nothing there aren't just funny people absent supporting environment you know yeah. so to look at it as a skill set to work at it as such I mean if you really dedicated yourself to being funny it would be pretty easy I think but you know to set aside time to be like I'm going to practice being funny seems like a weird idea yeah. you know but it works I have to imagine it would yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Well, one thing I forgot to do right when you came in was ask you, uh, I always like to just get you to say who you are and what you do. And then uh, I'll ask you a second question after that. So if you want to start there. My name is Stu Law. I am a graduate student at the University of Nevada, Reno. I'm going on like my seventh year or something crazy like that, trying to wrap up my dissertation, which is on, you know, sort of like relational responding. So relational frame theory is kind of a thing that I'm into a little bit. And I work at a place called High Sierra Industries. And we essentially, we provide job training and other services for adults with disabilities. And, you know, one of the things that I'm doing in my research and in my work is looking at, you know, the basic components of language that get us really far, that make it so that we can live independently and that make it so, you know, maybe even up to make us good literature writers, make us good comedians make us good rappers, right? So taking the basic elements of relational frame theory and putting them together in a way that tries to get at the basic elements of what's happening is sort of my research interest, you know, sort of picking up the basic research of complex language. Awesome. The question I wanted to follow up with was, why do you think I asked you here to talk about humor with me? I think you think I'm funny. Uh, I think that's one thing. You know, it's hard to pat yourself on the back, but I, I do hear a fair bit that I'm a funny guy. And this is something that I think about, right? I mean, yeah. I think whether it's a hobby or my direct research line, how we interact with language from this sort of functional standpoint as a behavior analyst is my is my research interest. It's it's something that I'm passionate about. And, you know, I think my account of complex language and the things that I've learned are helpful. I think there's a lot of really reductionistic stuff out there on comedy and it's difficult to really piece together a full account of it and yeah i would say you know some hopefully something along those lines yeah 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 i mean i'll add to it that you you and i've talked about this a lot and you've made it clear to me that you are interested in, in comedy and i think that you're in the unique position of being someone who has actually tried to learn about this and has a similar scientific worldview that I do yeah. that I think you know how to communicate about this in a way that's a little bit better than someone who is on the, and you've also presented so much. I know you know how to portray a discussion about this where other people will often they'll sort of fumble through an explanation that's sort of, that's mostly metaphors and similes and analogies and don't, doesn't really say anything about it or people who go way too scientific and are just on the super sim oversimplified reductionist end yeah. of it. Knowing you as well as I do, I know that you have the ability to look at this from a intellectual, but also a sort of, I don't want to say compassionate, but in a, a level of understanding that's beyond just here's a strict definition or here's a bunch of, examples i can throw at you that are sort of fumbling through an answer 
And so that's why I thought you'd be a great, probably the best person I could ask to even talk about this. I actually thought about like, I wonder if I could find a comedian to come on and talk about it. But I actually thought like that might not be a good idea. Cause no, probably I, I get can't is, imagine it is. Yeah. And you know, this is something that I, I say a fair bit, perhaps wrongly. So that probably the thing that I'm most qualified for is actually teaching people to be creative writers and a similar parallel would be, be comedians, you know, to think of unique relationships between things mm -hmm. and what are the kinds of things that you would pour into that goal, right? That's something that I think about a lot. And, you know, my experience in training in college as a writer was very disappointing given the training that I have now. There's a lot of wasted time and a lot of like touchy feely poor methodologies that aren't you know you can see why that happens though because the result is difficult to measure you right. know it's difficult to quantify these things and to really get a sense of but you know it when you see it kind of thing you know like there are rules and these rules are you know they're strict but they're ethereal right uh, sure. like don't be cliche it's a hard rule it's something that we interact with a lot as writers and as people who are trying to put words into the world is those words are things that we are well too aware of, right? Yeah. It's a cliche. And so when you're critiquing other people's writing, you might circle something and say, this is cliche. And every writer has their own little quip about writing, right? Like short words are best. Um, <laughs> every, you know, there's everybody has, I've heard like if your characters are crying, your audience isn't. Right, right. These right, the, really the show kind don't of tell. weird, yeah, show don't tell. These sort of weird rules that we've generated that aren't rooted in any kind of scientific finding. But then there's the risk of writing an article about humor and you're like, humor is when your diaphragm expands and contracts, you know? <laughs> there is this element of, that's very, your feet. <laughs> it's very unsatisfying, right? Yeah. It's very unsatisfying to try and put too much science behind something like humor well, I think not necessarily too much science, but I think the way you said it uh, earlier and, and trying to reduce it to a few components of what happens in that exchange. Yeah. Say like, uh, these, so are the, these are the only critical features that you need to know about. Like, right. And mostly what they're saying is that these are the ones we can always point to. Doesn't mean those are the only critical features, just that these are things that are commonly in place when this takes place. And right. so like we're going to point to those and say, that's what humor is when it's not. You and know, and when you try happen, to do that, you are going to likely come off as trying to reduce it to something that it isn't right, right. like t doing an account of love right is not going to capture me like having an argument with a person that i love dearly right it's going to be this weird definition of like you know you try to analyze it in your through your scientific lens too closely and then you get stuck in your worldview too narrowly yeah and so in narrowly defining a really complex set of events you're doing yourself a disservice often and the audience is probably not going to really care about your account. Yeah. All right, man. I got to wrap it up. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, you're welcome. Time travel. All right, cool. So that's going to end it for that interview. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I, I had a lot of fun doing it. Yes. And before you go, we have a quick announcement. We're trying to get an understanding of who is really listening to this podcast. We want you to go in and tell us who you are, who you really are, through a quick anonymous survey that just helps us understand exactly who's listening so we can help tailor our content a little bit more. We're talking about doing some new things, throwing some shirts, some other things online. So if you can just submit there, tell us a little bit about yourself. We keep that anonymous, but you can also submit, if you want to, your email address for some giveaways and such. Am I forgetting anything, Abraham? Well, I mean, just to be specific, that if you do complete the survey, you'll get a sticker 
and you'll be entered into a raffle to win a free shirt and you'll earn our eternal gratitude. And <laughs> this is your opportunity to be able to suggest topics. We don't do a lot of calls in the public, I guess, for like people that want to submit topics. And this is one where we're going to take all of them super seriously. So please consider throwing them out there. There was a bit of irony in there, I, I think, perhaps, if I'm using that correctly, when you said we want to know who you really are and it's completely anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we don't know how to pin that information, I guess, with you specifically as the listener. But yeah, you'll be we don't need us, your name. Yeah, you'll be giving us information <laughs> as to uh, how often you consume the podcast, topics you enjoy, themes, things like that. Yeah, we just want to know kind of things about you in terms of what kind of stuff you're into so we can be tailoring the podcast to be better and then just your social security number yeah, yeah just kidding say, but say not in, just joking i was gonna say not in a super creepy way and then you threw that in yeah no <laughs> yeah no nothing actually personal we're and we're not selling this information we're not publishing to anyone the only people who are going to see this are the the small group of people who work on this podcast primarily ryan and he'll share it with me Imagine if you had a bunch of social security numbers, I would freak out. Like, I don't want that. That's way too much yeah. responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't want to get caught with it either, but I also just don't want it. <laughs> All right. So yeah, if you can help us out, please do that. The link is in the description. And I think that's all we have this week, right? Yeah. I mean, I'll do a quick, you know, any other way you can help us out, leave us a rating or a review, subscribe, share us with a friend. If you want to join us on Patreon, we've got all this cool bonus stuff that you get for doing that. And yeah, I mean, thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Stu, very much for joining us for this interview. You guys will be hearing him again in an upcoming series of episodes we did on should we spoil it now or should we should we leave it for a surprise i think you gotta uh complete the survey or be a patreon member i'm okay. sorry okay i think that's the best way to do that help us out we'll leave it hanging and then <laughs> you'll, you'll find out in a few weeks when those episodes launch or else you can join us early and find out early and get early versions of those things if you are impatient and want to know what what other things what other pieces of wisdom we were able to coax out of stew totally different from humor by the way <laughs> we should we should do an episode on why we paywall what we paywall <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right i think we're we've totally digressed on this Okay. Well, it, and yes. it's all my fault. Let's be clear here, Abraham. <laughs> I th- it was a team effort. We worked together to to derail this train, <laughs> as usual. All right. I think that's it. Uh, this is Rhino. This is Abraham. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast, or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.